Namam Bhavats, Namam Bhavats, Namam Bhavats, Namam Bhavats. Okay, great. So thank you all very much for uh, joining us, uh, those who are here live. And uh, if you're joining us um, uh, after uh, the session has been posted on the website, uh, we welcome you as well. And you can check out uh, previous sessions if you'd like to explore more uh, on the San Mateo uh, Buddhist Temple website. Uh, if you go into um, the uh, study classes and seminars section, um, or just look for uh, the Shoshinge uh, section, uh, so Shoshinge study class uh, sessions. You can even do a search and those will come up and we have the previous sessions are all recorded and available uh, for you. And uh, today we will be talking about Tanwan. And so we've been uh, exploring uh, the Shoshinge uh, composed by Shinran Shonin uh, really as a uh, kind of a, uh, an encapsulation of the essence of the Jodo Shinshu teaching. Uh, Shoshinge begins with a section based on the sutras, and then uh, it goes into uh, the teachings of the Pure Land Masters of India, China, and Japan. Um, Last month, we concluded our study of the Indian masters with uh, Vasubandhu. And then this month, we finally made it to China. <laughs> we made it across the, the Himalayas or across the Indian Ocean. And we're in China now. Uh, and we'll be learning about Tanwan uh, and uh, a little bit about um, his kind of historical journey. And Tanwan is, is sort of uh, interesting in the Shoshinge in that he has um, there's sort of some specific biographical information about him as well, not just his uh, teachings, which are absolutely essential uh, to understanding Shinran's appreciation of the Nembutsu, but also uh, Tanlon's kind of um, his background and his life as well as touched upon. So we'll be talking a little bit about that as well. And it's a wonderful kind of lens through which to view and appreciate um, the Nebutsu teaching that was so meaningful uh, to Shindan and Tanwan and all of the seven masters. So with that in mind, I'll go ahead and share my screen now. And then we'll go ahead and begin with this uh, verse from Tanwan. Turning toward the dwelling of Master Tanwan, the Emperor of Liang always paid homage to him as a bodhisattva. Bodhiruchi, Master of the Tripitaka, gave Tanwan the Pure Land teachings, and Tanwan, burning his Taoist scriptures, took refuge in the land of bliss. Namang. So, uh, as I mentioned, um, this, this section, uh, this verse that we'll be talking about uh, really kind of focuses on Tanwan's, uh, his, his biography, his background. Um, and it, again, this is unique in that much of the Shoshinge really focuses on um, the teachings of the seven masters. But this section really talks about Tanwan's life and his, his, his relationships uh, with people. And it's kind of unique in that way, but I think they're very uh, significant. And so um, I wanna talk a little bit about them. Um, so uh, Tanwan, uh, as was the case often with Buddhist masters, was 
uh, revered by uh, the emperor of the time of the Liang, uh, the, this uh, area of the Liang dynasty or um, this Liang um, region. And so Tanluan received patronage uh, from the, this emperor um, and had interactions uh, with uh, the emperor. And the emperor himself viewed uh, Tanluan as a bodhisattva. And so we've talked a little bit about bodhisattvas uh, in previous sessions. I'll just spend a couple of minutes kind of recapping what, what a bodhisattva uh, is. And so in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, um, which is the Buddhism of uh, Tibet, uh, China, Japan, um, Korea, so North, Northeast Asia, um, and, you know, there was Mahayana Buddhism actually spread all over Asia, um, but it's sort of continued to, to thrive and be passed down in North and Northeast Asia. But so in this, this Mahayana uh, Buddhist tradition, the ideal uh, for Buddhist practice is what's called the Bodhisattva path. Um, and this is the path of realization, not just to benefit oneself, but the idea that one's attainment of complete realization uh, is expressed in guiding all beings to liberation from suffering. And um, there are basic bodhisattva vows, uh, bodhisattva vows not to attain enlightenment for them themselves until all other beings have uh, realized enlightenment. So they kind of hold on to this one attachment to uh, helping others. And as a result, bodhisattvas continue to appear in this world of, of uh, samsara or uh, this uh, world of uh, death and rebirth that we live in, this cycle of death and rebirth. Bodhisattvas continue to uh, come into this world to help others. And so someone who is revered as a bodhisattva is considered to be uh, one who has attained a very high level of awakening and then uh, it appears in our lives to be our, our guide on the path. So, so when this emperor of Liang met Tangwan, he felt this is a person, a being who in a previous lifetime uh, attained a very high level of enlightenment and is just hanging around trying to help me and others to guide us uh, on our own uh, journey to awakening. And so um, this is the way of uh, kind of revering many of, of the, the masters uh, in, in the Pure Land tradition as beings who came from the world of enlightenment and now are back in this world for the purpose of guiding us. So with this perspective, Tanwan uh, wouldn't be considered one who was sort of bound by uh, samsara, but rather one who is, is here as a compassionate act. So that was the view of Emperor Liang um, towards uh, Tanluan. And uh, Tanluan did receive uh, considerable patronage from that emperor. Um, and there's, there's a section, um, I'm going to uh, scroll down a little bit. So I've prepared uh, some, some resources, and this is available on the San Mateo Buddhist Temple uh, website as well. Um, what I'm screen, screen sharing is also there. And if, if you logged on through an email, there's a link to this um, 
this the, the page that has this information as well in that email. But um, I'm going to scroll down to the bottom. We have some sections from the wasan, the verses that Shinran Shonin composed uh, in appreciation of uh, Tanlon and his teachings. And so these, there's, he wrote an extensive number of wasan. And so the ones that I've included in the handout for today are the ones that touch on uh, some of these biographical details. Um, this first one talks about Bodhiruchi, and I'll get into that one um, later. Uh, but um, I want to share this, this section here. It says, the Lord of the mundane world came to inquire why he, and this is referring to Tanwan, aspired for the pure land. All Buddha realms throughout the ten quarters are pure. Why do you turn to the land in the west? So this is, um, you know, the teaching that's found in uh, the sutras describe how there are all of these these pure lands in all, you know, ten directions or all six directions, you know, depending on whether you count up and down, you know, uh, as a direction or use, you know, like the um, like northeast northwest. But basically, all directions there are Buddhas who have pure lands, and this is found in the sutras, and so. Uh, and they're all described as being pure and, and wonderful worlds. And so the emperor asked Tanwan, why Amida Buddha's pure lands specifically? You know, why, why don't you aspire for all the pure lands? Or why do you just pick this one to, to focus? Why are you narrowing your focus when there's all this possibility? Uh, to which Tanwan answered, since my wisdom is shallow, and I have not yet attained the higher stages of bodhisattvahood. I am incapable with my power of mind, powers of mindfulness of thinking equally on all lands. So uh, Tanwan, this is his insight that, you know, for an unenlightened being, one who doesn't have these tremendous powers of awakening, that um, for them, you know, they need something concrete and specific to focus on, to uh, aspire to. And so Amida Buddha's Pure Land provides that. And this is really uh, in keeping with the heart of the Pure Land tradition that it's for those who are not yet enlightened, but aspire to um, this higher levels of awakening. And so this response for Tanwan, I think to me shows the nature of his his kind of bodhisattva path, where he's showing that this is a path for unenlightened beings. So he's coming into this world to guide others by demonstrating, demonstrating the way for those who, who don't have deep wisdom, uh, for whom their wisdom is shallow, uh, to aspire on the path to awakening. So um, that to me kind of expresses the emperor of Liang and how he would venerate uh, Tanwan as a bodhisattva. So this would be you know, the kind of exchange that he would have with Tanwan. So, um, so now I'd like to get into this. Um, I'm gonna scroll back up here. I'll try not to do it too quickly. You know, it can be a little bit jarring to watch something that's being scrolled very quickly. So um, there. 
So I want to go back up to the, the verse from Shoshinge. And now look at the second part that talks about Bodhiruchi. Um, and so it's kind of out of order historically. You know, Shinran is sort of begins by saying this is this is the level of attainment to which Tanwan uh, had uh, had arrived. And so he introduces him, you know, like by way of introduction. This is how re much revered he was. And then Shinran kind of goes back in time and says, uh, to get to that point, this is the process that he went through. So it talks about Bodhiruchi, master of the Tripitaka, gave Tanwan the Pure Land teachings. So Bodhiruchi was a very important um, Indian translator of sutras. And many uh, important sutras translations are attributed to, uh, to Bodhiruchi. Um, and, you know, particularly um, the, uh, the teachings on the Pure Land. And so Bodhiruchi, master of the, the, the Tripitakas, the Buddhist canon, so he gave Tanwan the Pure Land teachings, and Tanwan, burning his Taoist scriptures, took refuge in the land of bliss. Okay, so, uh, so I want to share kind of the story of this period of Tanwan's life. Tanwan uh, started out as one who was uh, seeking, he wasn't uh, specifically a Buddhist monk per se initially, um, he was open to and pursuing anything that he thought would bring about long life. So he was seeking immortality. And this is a common uh, aspiration in uh, traditional uh, Chinese spiritual practice to uh, realize immortality, to realize the secret to a long, long life. And that's why if you see a lot of times the depictions of these Taoist saints, they have these incredibly long beards, these big foreheads that, uh, you know, the big forehead kind of symbolizes the, the wisdom, but then the long beard is like, this person's been living forever. And they have, you know, they've, they've realized the secret to, to immortality, to, to maintaining a long life. And so that was what Tanwan was aspiring to. Um, and it's, you know, it's said that, you know, as a, as a young man, uh, he was, he was, he, he became uh, very sick and he was actually started out doing, you know, Buddhist practices and, you know, working very hard and then became very sick and almost died from his illness. And so then he thought, well, I need to keep living. So I'm going to set out and he kind of got on this track of seeking immortality. And so he had traveled all over China uh, seeking, you know, texts and teachings that would uh, unlock the secrets to immortality. And so he had finally got his hands on these very rare kind of secret Taoist. Uh, and Taoism is, is an important religion uh, in China, even today. You know, it's one of kind of the three main traditional you know, religions in China, Confucianism, Taoism, and, and Buddhism. Um, and so he, he got these Taoist scriptures and he was, he was very, uh, very happy and very satisfied to have attained these, these Taoist teachings. And so he was traveling with these teachings and he met in the course of his journey, he met uh, this Indian monk, Bodhiruchi. And initially he was very excited because he's like, well, you know, this is a, a, an, a, someone from India you know, and he's obviously very learned and knowledgeable, perhaps 
he has some other teachings, you know, something else that could contribute to or enhance my, my quest for immortality and long life. And so when he met Bodhiruchi, you know, he asked him, you know, what do you, what do you have for me? What do you have that could, you know, enable me to live forever? And Bodhiruchi's response was, why would you want to live forever? Um, even if you attain immortality, you're just prolonging life in this world of birth and death. You're just prolonging the state of being stuck in, in samsara. Um, you know, I'm not interested in that. What I am seeking is, uh, is a, a boundless life free from birth and death. And I've found that in this, this teaching. And, you know, so Tan Luan's got his, his pile of Taoist teachings. He's like, I've got these. And Bodhiruchi is like, well, I have this. This teaching uh, is the path not to extending this life, but rather to realizing immeasurable life, boundless life through birth in the Pure Land of Amida Buddha. And Tan Luan then receiving these teachings and, and hearing this uh, understanding from Bodhiruchi is said to on the spot creates a, a, a bonfire and burns up all of his Taoist teachings right then which is, is, you know, is a very powerful message because he's not only is he saying, I don't need these anymore, but he's saying, uh, these are on the wrong track. And not only do I not need them, but I don't think anybody else needs them either. And they will only serve to sort of confuse or uh, mislead others. And so he then takes takes uh, soul, you know, soul focus on, um, this Pure Land teaching from that point and becomes one of the um, most um, uh, really significant and um, influential uh, teachers in the Pure Land tradition. It's Tan Luan's efforts to clarify the Pure Land teaching in uh, a way that the other kind of uh, Chinese Buddhist priests and um, Chinese scholars could appreciate and understand that enables the Pure Land teaching to really flourish in, uh, in China. And he's very early on. I mean, Bodhiruchi is um, giving him uh, Tan uh, Vasubandhu's treatise uh, not too long after it was actually written, you know, in, in the terms of um, the, the time scale of that time where you think about things have to travel across the Silk Road to get there. Um, it's a relatively short period of time. And it's just as the Pure Land teaching is coming into China, uh, Tan Luan, at that point where people are interested in this new teaching, Tan Luan is able to really clarify it um, and to express the uh, key points and the essential meaning of the, the Indian teachings, which he's receiving in translation, but to understand them and then to convey them in a way that uh, speaks to 
the questions and the concerns of the uh, Chinese audience. And this, so this move of burning these Taoist scriptures is really important because that was a key preoccupation of spiritual seekers at that time, was people were, were looking for this uh, longevity, how to extend this, this lifetime of mine, my lifetime. And Tan Luan shows them, he, he, he brings about this shift in perspective where it's like, what you wanna do is not extend this human life indefinitely, treasure it to be sure, but aspire to this immeasurable life of birth in the pure land. Um, so, and then at this point, um, I wanna get into uh, just one section of uh, one of the, the early, the first sort of uh, early sections in uh, Tan Luan's commentary on the treatise. And this is meaningful because it provides us with some insight into what it meant for Tan Luan to take refuge in the land of bliss. So um, this is a really important um, concept for understanding both Tan Luan's teachings and the Pure Land tradition in general. But what does it mean to take refuge in Amida Buddha um, and, and the, the land of bliss? Uh, we, we chant the Shoshinge, uh, we, the first verses of it, Himyo Muryo Junyorai. So uh, I take refuge in the Tathagata, the Buddha of a measurable life. Right? So this is, this is what Tan Luan does. This is what Chinran does. This is what all of us do. When we say Namo Amidabutsu, um, that's, it's that meaning of to take refuge in Amida Buddha. And so um, this passage both provides some insight into what that means, but also I think is a nice example of what Tan Luan does. He takes this Indian teaching and he really unpacks it for um, the Chinese Buddhist audience, which is translating it culturally into a different audience. So I think it's just as meaningful for us today as it would have been for um, those who are reading this in, in, the, you know, in Tan Luan's time in China. Um, so this is from Tan Luan's commentary on Vasubandhu's uh, you know, treatise. So Vasubandhu uh, reads the, um, you know, the, the larger sutra, reads the Pure Land Sutras, he writes a, a, a treatise about the Pure Land Sutras, the Buddha of a Measurable Life, and then Tan Luan comments on that. So we've got we've already got three layers here, right? We've got the Buddha's words, then we've got Vasubandhu's treatise, and then Tan Luan's commentary, and then you know, and then Shindan, you know. So this is the way it goes with Buddhism; it gets passed down, and no one no one claims to have an original idea except the Buddha. Everybody else is saying, this isn't my idea, but tracing it back to the Buddha. And just as a footnote, I think this is why scholarship of Buddhism is so difficult in our modern time, because these days to be a scholar in you know, North America in, in our modern times is to always, you have to be original, right? You have to make some original contribution to your field. You have to come up with something that's never been thought of before you know, some new and kind of interesting and exciting take on this topic. 
um, which is running very counter to the Buddhist tradition of um, really passing on, going as far back as possible and showing not that your ideas are original, but that they're actually based on something that comes from the past. Um, so that's what, what Tanwan is doing here. But really creatively um, expressing, and this is what that means for you. So that's what Shinran does too. And that's what um, you know the seven masters all do that in some way in their time. They're taking something traditional, passing it on, but saying this is what it means in, uh, in this different context in time. So there's, there's a kind of freshness and creativity to it as well. So, um, so this famous passage from the treatise that we, we looked at in previous sessions as well, and you, know, you, could, you can go back you know, a couple months um, to, I guess it would have been, this is session 20. So if you go back to session 18, we talked kind of specifically on this, this session, this um, verse from Vasubandhu. Uh, o world honored one with the mind that is single, I take refuge in the Tathagata of unhindered light, filling the 10 quarters and aspire to be born in the land of peace and happiness. So this is Vasubandhu's uh, treatise and then Tan Luan's commentary writes, uh, the words with mind that is single are Bodhisattva Vasubandhu's profession of personal commitment. They mean that in Vasubandhu's thinking on the Tathagata of unhindered light and aspiring to be born in the land of happiness, his thoughts on the Buddha succeed one another without any thoughts intermingling. So this is the idea of that single mind. And we've, we've talked about that a little bit uh, in uh, previous sessions as well but so that there's not other, other ideas aren't coming in. He's not like, you know, I'm aspiring to be born in the pure land, but oh, how are the warriors doing in the playoffs? <laughs> you know, I'm aspiring to be born in the pure land, but what's for lunch? Um, but he has, he has this single-minded focus. Okay. Um, and then this next, this next verse, I think is really interesting. I just, um, you know, it's so wonderful now, uh, since I started studying these things, they've become available. Uh, in recent years in English translation. And it's so nice to have access to this now because Shinran quotes sections of this, but you know, in the interest of space, he's not able to quote everything. But I feel that you know, some of these sections really speak to questions that I have or get asked uh, as a minister. So something I always say when people ask, you know, what is Buddhism about? You know, give me Buddhism in a nutshell. Um, you know, the idea that there, that there is no me or mine, that the idea of the self uh, is, is an illusion. It's something, a concept that we kind of make up and we cling to, and that this is the root of suffering. So the idea of there's no, there's no me, the self is an illusion, there's no ego, there's no soul in, in Buddhism. Um, and that's, I think, what's really earth shattering about Buddhism. Like, how can you say that? How can you say that there's no me or mine? Um, and so Tanwan addresses this question here in, in this verse. Um, so in the Buddha Dharma, there is no I. Then what is meant here by I in Vasubandhu's address? Right? And I can just imagine somebody coming to the study class and say, what well, you just said, there's no self. So why does he say, I take refuge? 
Why does it say in these translations, I take refuge in the Buddha? Why do we say that if there's no me and mine? Um, and Tanwan provides a, a really, I think, uh, elegant response to that. He says there are three derivations for using the word I. So in true like Chinese uh, kind of philological tradition, he's like, okay, I'm going to give you all the categories and break this down linguistically. But he says there's basically three things when you say I or me that you can mean, three, three derivations. And so the first is the I of a distorted view, distorted view. And this is a, a de the delusional thinking of, of I. Uh, to me, this is thinking that I exist separate from everyone else, that somehow, um, like the idea that I am able to accomplish anything by myself. You know, I think about uh, last week we had uh, Reverend Tadao Koyama came and spoke about how um, we can't do a service by ourselves. Even when we're on Zoom, we still have other people supporting and helping to make the service possible. And that's really an important Buddhist insight. You can't accomplish anything by just by me. Anything that I, uh, I'm able to accomplish is done through the support and through the, uh, the guidance of others. And that's a great insight that Koyama Sensei shared with us last week. And <clears throat> to me, that is um, the response to the wisdom that's the other side of the, the eye as a distorted view. You know, the idea that I did it by myself. I'm doing it by myself. Somehow uh, I exist separately from you. The ideas of our, our different identities, our uh, gender identity, ethnic identity, racial identity, national identity, um, all of these concepts that we cling to, like mine is right, yours is wrong. We're different because of this. Um, that is the eye of a distorted view. And the purpose of the Buddhist teachings is to help kind of peel that back. Um, okay, so then the second, the second way of talking about I is the I of self-conceit. To me, this is, you know, we've got the I of delusion, and then there's the I of attachment and greed, like the mind, that's mine. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, these things belong to me. They're not yours. Or you know, I am, I am so, so great, you know, get attached to the idea of myself as somebody who's, who's special, who's more important. You know, this is the, the eye of the whole universe revolves around me. It's all about me and my agenda, um, the eye of self-conceit. And so these first two, this delusional eye and this greedy attached eye, um, these two, ideas of self are, uh, they, they, those don't, they're not affirmed in Buddhism. Buddhism is saying that those are delusions, they're not real. Um, and so then Vasubhanu says, the third is the I used in ordinary language, um, where, you know, like we, as a function, you know, of the, the world, we, we have to identify ourselves. You know, even if we have this profound insight into the emptiness of the self, um, we still have have to have a name so people can talk to us. <laughs> um, we, you know, we have to um, 
you know, uh, kind of take care of, of ourselves in a, in a basic sense, you know, you need to eat food, you need to, um, you know, uh, have, have water, you need shelter, you need, you know, if you get sick, you need medicine. And this to me is, that's kind of the insight of, um, of Shakyamuni Buddha when he was seeking enlightenment and he collapsed he was seeking to kind of completely destroy that aspect of, of himself and just to wipe out, you know, this idea of wiping out I completely. Um, and in the end, he almost kills himself. And he, he receives a gift from, of milk from a young woman named Sujata that nourishes him and kind of brings him back to life, uh, reinvigorates him. And that's where he realizes this middle way. And to me, that's where you have this, this middle way between this, the deluded or attached idea of I, and then the ordinary sense of, yes, I, I do exist. There is a continuity of cause and effect that makes up my life. And that is what Vasubandhu is, is referring to, that continuity um, that, uh, that makes up our lives in referring to I. Right. So when he says, I take refuge in the Tathagata of unhindered light, filling the 10 quarters, take refuge is itself the gate of worship. So taking this life, this stream of, of karma, and directing that toward the Buddha of immeasurable life. And so when we say this, this take refuge, this is the meaning of namo. It also has this meaning. And so it's interesting, he says, um, light filling the 10 quarters, uh, take refuge is itself the gate of worship. And so we talked about uh, in the last two sessions, um, we talked about this, these five gates, the gate of worship, the gate of praise, um, the gate of uh, aspiration, the gate of um, contemplation, and then the gate of directing merits. So these first four being the kind of the entering into entering into the path, attaining the benefits, and then the fifth one being the going forth and sharing the benefits. So um, he's saying that this, this uh, taking refuge is, that is this first gate, this entering into the path of awakening. Um, and so he goes on, he says something interesting here. He says, we know that to take refuge is also to worship because Bodhisattva Nagarjuna, in composing gathas to Amida Tathagata, sometimes states, I bow and worship, sometimes I take refuge, and sometimes I take refuge and worship. So he's saying that, you know, these are they're the, the same thing, to take refuge in something and to, to worship something. Um, and so namo, that's where this namo has that, those two aspects of meaning, whereas namo uh, means to bow, a sort of basic sense of it's is to bow, so to kind of to bow and worship, but also this sense of of taking refuge. And so, uh, and he clarifies. I'm I'm going to, um, to 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 scan down a little bit in the interest of time. So, taking refuge is worship itself. He says so. To to take refuge is this this act of worship or bowing. Um, and worship itself, however, 
is only to pay homage and does not necessarily imply taking refuge. Rather, uh, taking refuge itself manifests itself in worship. So I want to pause here and just talk a little bit about what we mean by worship here. Um, again, this isn't something like worshiping the Buddha as like a, a powerful God outside of myself, but it is um, showing reverence for something that is greater than myself. So this is related to the, this idea of self. The worship is to express in a kind of physical sense one's reverence for uh, something that's larger than, than myself. And so this is, this is tied up in this question of I, who am I? You know, and it's by saying, I take refuge in the Buddha, saying this, this little me self that we talk about and that exists, this continuity of karma that I call myself, um, I'm going to uh, recognize that enlightenment is larger than that. I'm going to express that awareness that the Buddha's awakening is bigger than myself by this act of reverence in, in worship. So that is, you know, that's the shift that Tan Luan takes when he burns the Taoist scriptures. The idea of the Taoist scriptures are like, I got to keep me going as long as possible. I got to continue this, this, this me project. And uh, when he encounters the Pure Land teaching, he realizes that, no, that's, that's fruitless. Uh, that's trying to keep something that's not even real going. And so he says, let's let go of that and uh, take refuge in this, this larger larger reality of, of the Buddha. So um, there's another interesting section here. I included this almost, almost the entire um, section in the handout because I thought that there's just some great, great insights in here um, to share. Um, this next one I'm going to summarize, but you, I encourage you to read this in detail. Um, the question is, um, if the light of the Buddha is immeasurable, then why are there people who are not illuminated by it? So if everybody, if, if Amida Buddha's compassion extends to everybody, uh, what about the people who, who don't take refuge in Amida Buddha? You know, what about all these people who are left out? How, what, what about them? And, um, you know, Tan Luan says something interesting. He says, the problem isn't with the Buddha's light. The light shines equally on everybody, but not everybody opens their eyes to receive it. And he, Tan Luan has these great metaphors. Um, he talks about the rain pouring on a stone. It's like if the clouds pour down rain on a stone um, and the middle of the stone doesn't get wet. It's not, it's not the rain's fault <laughs> that it could, you know, it, it drenched the stone. It's the, the stone that's keeping that out, right? And so um, the idea that, you know, the Pure Land teaching is open to everybody, but we have to somehow open our hearts to be able to, to absorb that, to receive that. And to me, that's sort of the shift of uh, Xinjin, the awakening to being able to receive that. 
and then um, then this is this next next section um, talks about uh, that the question. Uh, in the Mahayana sutras and treatises, it is frequently taught that in the final analysis, all sentient beings are unborn like empty space. Why does Vasubandhu express an aspiration for birth? Right? So basically, this is the question of who is born in the Pure Land? If there's no such thing as, as me, as a self, then who is it that, that gets born in the Pure Land? Um, and so, so again, uh, Tan Luan very skillfully says, there's two ways of understanding this, okay? So the first way when we talk about birth and death, there's um, this idea that ordinary people, when they see someone, we talk about people are born, people die, and um, we think of that that's, that's something real, that there's a kind of a, a, a hard reality to that, that the most true and real aspect of birth is when a baby you know, uh, emerges from its mother's womb into the world. And that the most true and real meaning of death is like you know, your heart stops beating and then you know, your body ceases to function. And then you're, you're really, that, that that is death and it's very final. And so uh, Vasubandhu says that these, these, these things that we see and perceive with our eyes it's like tortoise fur. So you think about a, 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 a tortoise, like a, you know, a, a, this uh, you know, amphibious kind of reptilian creature with no fur at all, you know, and it's living in a pond, but you, know, you see it and you're like, oh, look, it's a furry tortoise. I've discovered the furry tortoise. Uh, and from a distance, you think that's real. But then when you come up close, you realize that there's moss growing on its back. And so, you know, you have an idea, but then when you, upon closer examination, you see what's real and true. And so uh, Vasubandhu says, the reality is that we're born from causes and conditions. And so our life is a continuous stream of cause and effect, cause and effect playing out, not just beginning with the moment of birth and ending with the moment of death, but starting long before our parents meet or even our grandparents meet and continuing on uh, even after uh, we die. You know, the, the, the relationships, the connections we have with others, that continues on beyond um, the bounds of birth and death. And so there's Vasubandhu kind of turning away from this idea of, I can't die. I, I've got to, you know, got to try to stay alive and recognizing that you know, that whole way of thinking about death is mistaken, that the immeasurable life is realized through really dedicating this life to uh, compassion and uh, realizing understanding for oneself, guiding others. And in that way, then um, the immeasurable life is attained that we, we call uh, birth in the pure land of the Buddha. So, um, and this, this is related to that, this next section, this next question also sort of touches on that idea of, of who is born in the Pure Land. And, um, you know, I encourage you to really, you know, delve into this more. And if you want to send me questions, feel free to uh, reach out and we can kind of dig into this more. 
Um, but I think at this point, um, I'll conclude here um, with these sort of insights. And there's, there's a lot here in Tanlon. And then um, we'll, we can stop the recording and ask some questions and um, you know, digest this. And again, if you're watching this recording online after the session, um, you know, you're always welcome to join us. Um, you can, if you're, if you're on the website, you can just scroll down to the bottom of the page. There's a place to sign up for study classes and seminars, and you're welcome to join us uh, for the conversation and um, you know, get to, to ask your questions or share your insights uh, with us on Zoom. So uh, we'll conclude this session here. Uh, please join me in Gasha. Namo Amida Butsu. Namo Amida Butsu. Namo Amida Butsu. Namo Amida Butsu. Namo Amida Butsu.